Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Megan Nolan, my guest today, first came to my attention when my dear friend Sharon directed me towards her writing in various newspapers, including The Guardian, The New York Times and The Statesman. I was drawn to her honesty as a writer who was prepared to reveal her inner dialogue and speak openly about her own personal life experiences. Often tackling traditionally taboo subjects, the comments under her features can provoke strong emotions. When I heard that she was soon to publish her first novel, Acts of Desperation, I contacted her to invite her to be a guest on Superbrain. I was eager to read her book and whilst I expected it to be a no-holds-barred sort of read, I did find the content somewhat depressing and anxiety-inducing at times. It is a book about a dysfunctional relationship and about self-destructive behaviour. So it was never going to be a joyride. And in fairness, it does end on a note of hope for a better future and lessons learned rather than behaviour to be repeated. Nonetheless, given the content, I think it is important to give listeners a trigger warning. My copy of the book is filled with notes and comments. At the end of the day, I am a psychologist and a neuroscientist, so I am really always interested in why people do what they do. And I guess this is what Megan explores in the book. Acts of Desperation is really thought provoking and it was great to have the opportunity to explore my thoughts with its author, Megan Nolan. Hello, Megan. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. This is so exciting. Your first book. You are no stranger to writing and I have read with avid interest so many of your articles in the New York Times, the Statesman, the Guardian. I mean, you have been published in so many classy (laughs) newspapers and publications for someone so young. Tell me a little bit about that first. You know, how did you make that happen? Because you have to make that happen. Those kind of things don't just happen for you or any writer. No. Um, So I started off, it would have been about 2016, I think, when I first set my first ever pitch to a newspaper. And it was just a cold pitch. I I found some people um, on Twitter that edited various sections of websites that I liked. And I just started pitching that way. So I think I had something in the independent first was the first ever um, proper publication I had. And um, it was just a matter of using my spare time wisely, I suppose. I was working full time just doing admin and like temp jobs and things like that. And where I could find, you know, spare hour, my lunch break or after work, I would just try and come up with a few ideas even if I didn't have anything totally burning I, I would you know maybe have a look at the news and see if I could come up with any ideas from things that were taking place like that so really it was just from cold pitching like that that I got yeah. my byline and I think it's a bit easier than people might imagine to, to get into somewhere like the Guardian you know I, I would have assumed it was a totally closed book only for that I happened to have a friend who had something published there so I think people maybe overestimate how hard it is to get a foot in the door you know, obviously not everyone will be able to do so, but I think it's worth a try more than people might think. It is rather interesting. It is almost textbook. It's what, you know, when you read, how can I get published? You know, anything you read online will say uh, in terms of newspapers, you know, uh, keep yeah. an eye on the news, what's topical, hang an angle on it and pitch it. Um, yeah. You know, and you just, and actually in a lot of newspapers, if you look at the editors or in my case, it would be health mm-hmm. editors I'd be looking at and um, their emails are there. So yeah, yeah, it really can be like that, certainly here in Ireland. And I suppose when you talk about the independent, you're talking about the Irish independent or was it in the UK? 
UK? No, that was the UK one. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't really start publishing much until I moved to, to London. Right. Yeah. So to put that in context, you are and I can put you in context for me because you're born the same year as my son. 1991? No, I'm 1990. 1990. That's right. You're between my two sons. So I have 189 and 191. So you would have been about 25 at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just before my 25th birthday. Yeah. Right. That's pretty cool. Since then, you have a very particular, raw, honest style that sometimes, forgive me if this sounds strange, but sometimes it's like self-flagellation. There's a, a certain element of self-criticizing. Is that kind of accurate or would you see it that way? Um, I think, no, I wouldn't consider it self-flagellation. Like I'm not trying to, you know, like talk badly about myself. But um, yeah, I think that I'm interested in the motives of like why people behave as they do, including myself. And like, I try to resist. If I'm writing about something bad that happened to me or like a traumatic experience I don't really want it to be like a victim narrative where it's just me talking about some bad thing that's happened to me so I try to like contextualize everything by including my own thoughts you know even if those are ugly thoughts or or ugly behaviors so I suppose that you know I think that's what I'm trying to do rather than to say that I'm a bad person or to like criticize myself overly yeah, I suppose my choice of word is wrong. And but and it can appear when you're reading, you kind of go, they're very raw and very honest. And that's why they're so good, you know, and most people, I think, can identify with them. And mm-hmm. I suppose where I'm coming from is for a lot of us who would not be able to write in that honest way for whatever various reasons, perhaps we might feel too vulnerable or, or you know, too fearful of what the response would be or considering other people, you know, family members and imagining mm. them reading, etc. Because, you know, when you write honestly like that, there's all those yeah. factors, which I kind of do want to talk to you about yeah. um, a little bit. So I suppose that's me rather than you, me sort of saying, oh, my God, why would you beat yourself up and write that again? Was it not bad enough that it happened? Yeah, but I'm very yeah. glad that you've written it, if you understand that's sort yeah. of um that's connecting you can't not connect and you're not afraid to speak out I'm going to just pick out one article because I do want to ask you how you coped because this podcast is all about surviving and thriving in life and mm-hmm. and you know when we come to your new book or your first book acts of desperation there's so much in there to talk about but I just want to talk about a recent article that you wrote I think it was the New York Times the joy of frivolous sex Mm -hmm. Um, and you're really just very honestly talking about how in lockdown you miss having sex and miss casual sex even and the reason I bring that up is not for the article itself which I think was excellent and honest and must reflect what a lot of people are thinking and experiencing and feeling and it's more the responses that you got to that. Or do you not look at those? Are you smart yeah. enough not to look at those? Or do you go down and read through them? Um, sometimes I, re- I read things. But um, with that one, just because the scale of the audience is so much different with the New York Times, like uh, there's too much. You couldn't like keep up with what people are saying about it, really, because it's just too wide of an audience responding. So in that particular instance, um, combination of that and then the fact that people obviously were criticizing it and wanting to have a go at me or whatever but also it was um it was very near Christmas so I just thought I'm going to log off for a couple of weeks and nobody will care after that period of time you know um I mean it's obviously I do look at some things but you just can't sit there and read every single thing because I think that you go mad but yeah I mean I would like to get to a place where I don't read any of them but it's kind of impossible because at the moment, like, I have to use Twitter. Like, I would love to not be on Twitter because I'm really yeah. addicted but I have to use it, you know, for, for work. So if I didn't have to use it and I was sort of allowed by my editors and everyone who publishes me, if they didn't mind, I wouldn't be on it. Uh, just because of my own weakness with it because I'm not able to use it moderately, you know. Right. Um, but I would like to get to a point where I don't read those things, like read the comments like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very human. You want to get feedback. You put time and effort into yeah, something exactly. and you want to get feedback. And I mean, I remember even saying that to my son as well, who's a musician. If you're going to take the praise on board, you have yeah. to take the criticism on board. Exactly. So you have to find a way to evaluate what you do independently and take joy from it in and of itself and how you feel about it. Yeah. 
But sometimes that's very hard. And I agree with you. I don't think I would be on Twitter if I kind of didn't have to be in a way. And I know I should be on more social media in a way. (laughs) And, you know, I kind of try to do the Instagram and then I just feel, no, there's too much in my life. I wouldn't say I'm addicted to Twitter. Um, I can leave that. But I am addicted to email, which is very similar in a way in that for me as well. And I'm sure it is for you that email can mean work. Or not mean work. And it can mean a response that you're waiting for or you've pitched something or you're kind of hoping to get it back. So for me, I'm a bit like that. You know, I kind of want to keep checking my emails and did something come in and almost feel like, oh, why is email so quiet? (laughs) You know, it does impact on me and how I am. But having said that, going back to what it used to be like. So I used to be an an actor donkeys years ago. People (laughs) listening to this are fed (laughs) up hearing it. But it was before we had mobile phones, before we had the Internet. And so as an actor you're very powerless like at least yeah. what I do now I have some power I can decide to create and the world has changed in that a lot of us can just create even in the pandemic whereas back then and being an actor you are at the mercy of casting agents and directors yeah. and work and so I would leave the house sometimes just to be able to come back in and hope that the phone rang when I was out and I frantically <laughs> checked the answer machine and there would be nothing and it was just such oh or then you'd go for an audition and you'd be afraid to leave the house for days in case you missed that call yeah. just crazy 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 way to live so yeah I mean it's kind of pretty human and um, you are definitely fascinated with the human condition I can hear that and see that in your writing I am too yeah. that's I guess why I'm drawn to you and why I really wanted to have you as a guest because I want to get inside your super brain because you do have an amazing brain <laughs> and for someone so young and your way of writing It's wonderful, folks. If you haven't come across Megan Nolan, even just Google her and find some of her articles. They really are quite different and they stand out from the pack in a way and quite interesting. And I would sort of say in a way I'm not. And I would say this about your book. You know, I don't think I would necessarily be your target audience for the book. But I certainly, um, the book, which is called Acts of Desperation, and it's a beautiful hardback and the cover is gorgeous. And actually, I wanted to know, is this your face in the cover? No, it's not, no. <laughs> no, because inside there's a beautiful photo of you. I love yeah. your, your short chopped fringe, but it does seem very like you around the mouth. I know, a couple of people have said that to me. <laughs> yeah, very, very full lips. I would imagine that they did that. Which sort of brings me to a question. So this is a novel. Mm-hmm. Would you describe it as autofiction or autobiographical fiction or pure fiction? I don't really know what the parameters of. I, I, I wouldn't call it autofiction because I think okay. that implies that you're just rendering an experience from your own life and just like making it more poetic. That's what I would think of as autofiction, and that's not what the book is. Like the events of the book are fictional. You know, their dynamics might be based on real things, but okay. the actual events are not from my life. You know. Um, there's not an equivalent boyfriend that I had who could match up to the one in the book. Kieran. Um, and, and even, yeah, Kieran. And um, I always say, like, the feelings of the book are real and they are drawn from my life, but they're expressed through these fictional events and they're made, you know, more dramatic, obviously, because it's a novel. It's not going to be um, just mundane as sometimes life is. Um, so, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's pure fiction because, as I say, like the narrator is heavily based on me in terms of her motivations and her feelings. But then the things she actually does and the actual relationship are fictional. Right. OK. OK. So that's very interesting because that is something that was in in my head the whole time reading it, you know, because there are similarities, you know, in terms of being from Dublin and even just, you right. know, the location. And of course, yeah, yeah write, write what you know, but the location and your parents and having separated parents. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of things in there that you can't help but wonder. And I think yeah. part of that is probably the honesty of the writing. You definitely go right inside the brain of your protagonist. And in fact, do we have a name? Do we, Does she have a name? No. No, she doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't. I haven't done this for a very long time, but I just have notes the whole way. <laughs> yeah, just all over the place. It, it's, how would I put it? I have said several times on this 
podcast and I want to say it to younger women that life gets better as you get older Mm -hmm. contrary to what the world would have you believe that somehow we become dry and shriveled up and somehow lesser than our younger selves Mm -hmm. Um, I honestly believe and I know this from talking to other women my age as well actually we become more and more comfortable in who we are more comfortable in our own skin more comfortable in saying things like no although I still struggle with that and I will Mm -hmm. come back to talking about that because I think it's kind of a key theme or an ultimate message maybe in this that I certainly took away from it yeah but boy did it bring me back to sort of my teens and my 20s I've said it time and time again folks they are so hard they are the hardest years the 30s get a little bit better and then after that (laughs) you know yeah life is hard in terms of if you decide to have family and mortgage and those kind of things but nothing like the journey. And I think this is the journey that you're taking us on. This journey of your protagonist who is seeking herself in others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's quite painful. It's a painful read at times. Yeah. I don't mean that in a bad way. But no, yeah, yeah. certainly um, that's intentional. It It is that sort of thing where you go, oh, God, yes, I remember. And there's comfort in that. My generation didn't talk very much about it. So our shame was much more private and held within ourselves. And you had a sense that you were the only person who did those terrible, shameful, stupid things in the name of love or what you thought love was. Whereas even me, all these years later, you know, we'll say 30 odd years later, gaining comfort in seeing, yes, I remember feeling that way. I remember being that person. I remember being that needy. Yeah, I remember feeling that unworthy. I remember also having a very beautiful boyfriend. So perhaps you'll describe Kieran a little bit because you've created him. Yeah, so he's a character who's um, seen by the narrator sort of across the gallery for the first time. And she is sort of taken aback by him being so unusually beautiful and unlike other people that she knows in Dublin and in her life already, a very strikingly sort of um, unusually beautiful person. He's you know, very tall, very long limbs, sort of blonde and down, you know, like that sort of uh, really almost translucent blonde and uh, very angular looking man. And he's just very beautiful and very unusually beautiful in a way that she hasn't seen in her life very much before. And she sort of immediately knows this is someone she's, you know, she's going to do anything to be with. And yes, and she sort of does in a way, in a well, I would describe it as a self-destructive way, yeah. even though she doesn't know who self is and probably makes it even more vulnerable in a way is that she somehow, just from me coming from a neuroscience and a psychological perspective, mm. it's rather interesting because I do think some of these things are very peculiar to a particular time in our life. You know, your character is very early 20s, I think, when yeah. we meet her first, yeah. which is when the brain is still developing. And rather interestingly, yeah. the rational part of your brain really hasn't fully developed at that point. Right. And in love, when we fall in love, initially, love is rewarding. Dopamine is released. And, um, you know, it's as powerful as heroin addiction. And I actually think really this book captures that sense, you know, mm. that addiction. She is... Yeah addicted to Kieran, but also addicted to this notion of love. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's about him, but it's also sort of trying to win this game that they're playing between the two of them where he withholds and then she pursues and then this sort of goes back and forth between that over and over again. And because there's no real satisfactory outcome to that dynamic, she can't really escape it, you know. Yeah, and I think she's probably in it because it has that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Because I think from the outset, you see, certainly with the hindsight of sort of being an, you know, an older woman who's thought about why we do these things, as a lot of women I know have done, you know, you, yeah. you have this really stupid relationship. And actually, something I often wonder about is, this is funny, I used to wish that, and this is, I suppose, the fairy tale that we were kind of brought up with. I used to wish that I would fall in love with and marry my first boyfriend mm-hmm. that that would be so perfect and actually I know a few people who did that yeah and I used to kind of envy that but then actually what happens is for the most part they end up splitting up because yeah they were two not fully formed individuals who made a lifelong commitment before they had evolved into yeah 
I find it a very romantic idea as well, but I find I can't even imagine how it would work. You know, like I like I'm such a totally different person than I was when I was 17 that I can't imagine how people do it. But obviously, some people do make it work and like are together for their whole lives, and I really admire that because they must work out these ways of um, accommodating change in each other that I probably haven't had to learn how to do so much in my relationships. You know. Yeah, well, I mean, I've always said that I do think marriage is more like a figure eight of a relationship. You get married because you've come together. And, you know, and for me, I got married. I was married before I was 25. So, mm. again, in hindsight, it seems incredibly yeah. young now. But I felt very mature at that age. And it's only with more maturity that you realize, gosh, because I even said to my own son who got married. And I says, are you guys not very young to be getting married? And he says, I'm older than you were when you married. But um, before I lose my own train of thought, yes, the sort of figure eight. So you come together because you have a connection and you fall in love or whatever, you know. And of course, that initial passionate love fades. Yeah, it just does. Um, and you also grow. I mean, hopefully you grow as individuals. You don't yeah. want to be stunted as the person you were at 24 when you're 34. So sometimes you grow apart. But if you value the relationship and what you've cut, that you allow yourselves freedom to grow apart. And then when it gets to a certain point, you go, right, right well, can how can we readjust this and make this work for us yeah. together again? And I often think that some people actually give up too soon. The growing yeah. apart happens and they think, oh, well, we're not suited to each other anymore. But that's yeah. just people developing in different ways. And that actually should, to my mind, actually make a relationship more interesting mm. rather than less so. Because you have this new sort of dynamic to figure out together, you mean? Yeah, I think so. And yeah. and you're growing. You're not the same. Like, who wants to be? Like, I've been married over 30 years. Who wants to be in a way with the same person for 30 years? I know that sounds like the strangest <laughs> thing to say, but where a person has not changed for 30 years. I think that would be yes. almost like a prison sentence in a way. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre comes to mind where you say, <laughs> hell is other people. Do you know, it kind of seems yeah. a little to me like that. But yes, I think the dynamic in this is that it's very well captured. And I think it's that dynamic of younger women. And I think it happens to younger men too, if we're perfectly yeah. honest. And I think in a way, your male protagonist, Kieran, he actually has experienced it with Freya. Yeah. His former girlfriend, I yeah. think. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, he's definitely had a sort of um, formative experience of being burned by needing somebody too much. And that's partially why he is the way he is, you know. Yeah, he's playing it cool. You describe him time and time again as a cold individual, mm -hmm. but he's cold as a consequence. It's that, yeah, you do give some little insight into his family past mm -hmm. as well. And so there are reasons for his coldness, but yeah. also reasons to suspect that it's not coldness through and through yeah. because you can see that history and I suppose that's part of what your protagonist is at but it seems to me that no matter what or who your protagonist went for yeah she wouldn't stay the minute the person actually loved her and treated her well she wouldn't stay yeah, I think that at that time period that the book is set in, as you said earlier, it's not a coincidence that she chooses Kieran, this person who's impossible to sort of pin down and to get straightforward affection from. Like she's chosen him not only because she's so attracted to him and he's so gorgeous and he's so interesting and aloof and all that, but also especially because he won't satisfy her and won't say I love you and won't sort of give these things that she wants. And I think that 
yeah, I mean, it does happen in the book that when he does eventually sort of is almost like eroded, his resistance is broken down by her taking so much time to try and wear down these defences that he has. And when he does eventually allow them to be worn down and give her a bit of vulnerability and a bit of love, then she's almost on to the next thing to think about, whatever that might be, whether it's another man or or the breakup or something, the new thing that has to happen because she can't just relax and be herself. Yeah, and sex and sex and more sex and not very pleasant sex and humiliating sex in a way. And I found some of that quite hard, you know, to read in that you kind of, why are you doing this to yourself? You know, and that's kind of an interesting question. And I think reading the book, and I think it's a journey that you go on. This book, you know, a lot of the time you kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah. In a, uh, but that's the journey. You know, it's not like a book where there's a spoiler alert or anything like yeah. that. It, yeah. You know, anyone who's reading it who can identify with it has been yeah. down that yeah. uh, roller coaster. Yeah, I don't think anyone could read the book and be halfway through it and think, oh, everything's going to end up great to them, you know. <laughs> like, I don't think there's never they're going to end up happily married together or something like that, you know. Yeah, and I also think, though, what it is is, and that's why it, it really is a journey and a journey that you become very invested in emotionally, you know, and that's why I say it's tough. What I mean is, certainly for me anyway, it's not a book that you can read and read from a distance. It's a book yeah. that you experience you feel it's raw like your regular writing you know like you're right in there and so certainly for me and you know my feelings are quite close to the surface that's why I was an actor in the past so I tend to be able to you know that sort of empathy so I'm there with her and it's a case of how far down are you going to go you know how how far down this journey and in some ways actually that gave me comfort and I actually reckon it will give some readers comfort because you kind of go okay I didn't go that far I got out before is that a thought that crossed your mind yeah, no, not that particularly, but um, yeah, definitely when I was writing the sort of parts where she is coming to this sort of crisis and she's acting out to try and um, threaten the relationship with Kieran and sort of take back her own control in this really destructive way. When I was writing that part, it was like an expression of things that I had been inclined to do, but never like as explosively as I write her doing. I'd never done it in this sort of crazy, sort of theatrical way that she does it. And it was sort of good to write that out properly as it is in the book, as a totally complete self-destruction, whereas like I had only ever experienced it myself as a more muted version of what she's doing, you know. So, yeah, it was interesting to do that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to read it that way. And I actually think it, in a way it will be helpful for women. You know, I mean, I even sort of said, oh, OK, do you know, and then that's so many years ago. But for so many women and so many of us beat ourselves up for things that we have done. And I think some people struggle to get over that. It's like that thing of you make this one big mistake and somehow the rest mm. of your life is ruined. Yeah, yeah. I think the book has certain hope in that regard. And I think it's rather interesting for me reading it again also, and I can't help but do that as a neuroscientist and a psychologist Mm -hmm. trying to understand, because that's what's great about it. You know, sometimes you read books and characters do things and you kind of go, nah, nobody would do that. And for all these crazy self-destructive actions that your protagonist engages in, they are all very real and very possible and very explainable through the human condition. That's what I think is very real and vital about this book. And even to understanding what happens in the brain when we do fall in love. Um, And I think it's particularly of interest for women and men of this age when your frontal lobes aren't fully developed. So when you Mm -hmm. fall in love, your emotional brain takes over. And in fact, love is blind. The parts of your brain that are capable of critical analysis are switched off. Yeah. And you can't make any of those rational decisions. You see only with that desire, that lust, that need for love. And that happens to all of us. Uh, But usually what happens is eventually your rational brain takes over after Mm -hmm. a period of time. And that's when the passion goes. And that's when you find out probably whether you're in a good relationship or not, because you're quite comfortable then. Look, hey, yeah, no, he's still a good guy or he's or else it's, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) What was I doing with this? person. But I think because our frontal lobes aren't fully developed till about the age of 25, Mm. when you fall into those relationships, 
aside from the fact that your emotional brain is in charge, you actually don't have the fully developed frontal lobes that could claw you back. Yeah. So I think you're at a much greater risk of falling down. Yeah. And also even in terms of like material things, like so when I was the, you know, between 18 and 23, 24, I didn't have like a very stable position in life. You know, I didn't have a proper job or career. I, you know, like I didn't live in a very stable situation. I was moving all the time. I just didn't have a very concrete life, you know. So if I now found love with someone tomorrow, I've got a job, I've got an apartment I have to pay rent on, I have to like maintain my life. And I couldn't, functionally, I couldn't throw everything away to be with a person. Whereas in my early 20s, there wasn't really anything to lose, you know, like you still were figuring out what your life was going to look like. So you could kind of throw all your eggs into this basket and maybe that would work out and that would be your life, you know. Whereas now it's just not the case because I already have a bit of a sense of what my life is without a partner in it. I wouldn't just throw it all into one person, you know. Yeah, and I do think that's interesting. And it did cross my mind in the book, the freedom to do that your protagonist has, you know, the freedom. It's never a freedom I experienced because I started working as soon as I left um, school. Yeah. So it's even different, I think, even for people in university, there's still a freedom, yeah. you know, a certain freedom, because often students don't go to lectures at all. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And they can cram. And so it's about living. And yeah. I think it's a very important period of time. It's a period of self-discovery. But I think it's a period of time where it is quite risky for young adults actually to be alone without and it sounds awful, but without mature input to give you some context. And in a sense, this is what your character is. She is alone. You know, she has friends, but friends are in a similar stage or some of the friends that she hangs around with. And then, of course, alcohol is thrown into the mix. And so with alcohol, anyway, even if you were fully developed, your frontal lobes are switched off. So Mm -hmm. you get down to the three Fs, you know, fighting, fucking and feeding, you know, basically um, is what happens because there are baser instincts. And so a lot of the decisions that your character makes and a lot of the things that she does are when she has Mm. consumed copious yeah. Amount of alcohol. Yeah. And I think that's sort of an important discovery. So she's a very real character going through a very challenging journey. And I think it's so well written and so very human, which I think is interesting. I'm interested as well in terms of tying back to some of your own experiences, because some of them tie into this. And one thing I do want to talk about is kind of the concept of rape and of consent. And you have written about that. Yeah. You wrote it in the context of consent classes should be compulsory in university and young women and I totally agree with this. Young women need to understand consent themselves, as well as it being an issue for men to understand. And maybe you haven't intended to explore it in this, but particularly with the character Mark later in the book, yeah. you know, where essentially, in a way, she allows herself to be raped because it's easier than having to keep saying no. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a complicated, I wouldn't use that word for that scene, to be honest. But I mean, obviously, it's very subjective, because she consents to it. But obviously, she doesn't want to, but he doesn't. It's not by a legal definition, rape that scene, you know. Um, Yeah, I know. But you see, I think that's interesting. I think that's why it's an interesting scene and an interesting conversation. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people, even in long-term, full-time relation. In this particular relationship, she's not really interested in this guy. But I think this is something that can play out in relationships where it becomes easier, you know, when you say no and it's not accepted and you write it very well. Oh, please. And there's wide eyes. and No, why not? And so in a sense, arguably it is. The protagonist has said no and it hasn't been accepted. And so whilst ultimately you say that she consents. She has been coerced. Yeah, oh, I'm not saying it's an example of a healthy scenario. Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, yeah, there's mostly like a lot of porous gaps between what is consensual and what's not. In terms of legality, it's a different thing. But in terms of um, what takes place between two people, I mean, it's a very thin border, really, because, you know, you might say yes and then just not be very into it but you know that you're not angry that it's happening and you'll continue to do it because it's easier and that's pretty normal like that's not even a remarkable situation like that's the thing that probably happens to a lot of people 
Yeah, I know. And I, and I agree. And I think sometimes that is part of a relationship. You know, you kind of go, well, you know what, sometimes they don't want it. And you give a gift to someone in a way is the way I would yeah. sort of look at that. It's like giving a gift. Yeah, you mightn't particularly be in the mood, but well, look, you are and I love you. And, yeah. you know, here's a gift. And I think that's very normal. Yeah. And it's how relationships work. But I do think that's slightly different to this scene where your character says no more than once. Yeah, 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 definitely. All all I meant was that there's a sort of um, spectrum of, you know, say on the great, totally healthy end of the spectrum where two people are incredibly enthusiastic and both really want to have sex. And then on the other end of it is rape, right? So there's a spectrum of things in between that that aren't healthy and aren't good and what takes place in that scene you're describing is not illegal but it's very bad anyway and that's the interesting area I suppose is like between what is legal and what is wrong but is not illegal. Yeah and I think legality is almost a separate issue you know because rape wasn't illegal in marriage up until relatively recent in Ireland so. So yeah I think that including those sorts of scenes is a way to try and show that especially when you're younger you don't really know what's wrong yes you know that a certain kind of very violent behavior is wrong definitely but you might not know that the other kinds of things are wrong yet so I was trying to sort of show that difficulty you know to know how important you say no is to these people or not you know yeah no and I think you did that very well that's one strong piece that I took away from this that it is an exploration in a way um I mean it's a story at the end of this whether it's an anti-love story or a love story or or, to me in a way as well it's a journey that many people have to go through in a way it's a journey of self-discovery yeah but starting out with your protagonist feeling feeling invisible that she only exists yeah through love and sex Yeah, definitely. I think that as sort of briefly um, touched upon earlier, you know, she hasn't managed to sort of build a self for herself yet. She hasn't really moved beyond the sort of post-school period where you get drunk a lot with your friends and that's sort of all that matters. And that's sort of socially condoned, you know, when you go to university, you're allowed to do that, basically. And she hasn't like figured out what to do after that period of your life where that is sort of socially allowed. And now it's not really socially allowed anymore. Her friends are starting to grow up and get jobs and do different things for her. But she hasn't made a move to try and decide what to do yet like they have. So when she finds someone to invest in, you know, that takes away that worry because she can do that instead. And it's obsessive love. Yeah. I think because of the fact that she has nothing else, by necessity, it sort of has to be obsessive because she doesn't have anything else to fall back on. It's not like um, if you've got a healthy enough life, if you suffer... a terrible breakup it's never going to be okay like it's still going to be devastating but you have structures around you to comfort you you know you have your family and your friends and you have you know a sort of um functioning life to fall back into but if you don't feel that you have a functioning life to fall back into you can't really risk this thing going wrong with someone else you have to make it work so that's why it becomes so obsessive and and I was interested reading it, you know, and I was thinking about the protagonist and thinking about what made her this way. And she's not that unusual. And I, I wonder, because it's sad. It's sad that she has no sense of self and she's seeking that through finding love and so almost sees that love is the point of living. Yeah. And, and I kept thinking, like, how do we get to that? And I do think, or would you agree, you're an avid reader, which I want to talk to you about as well and have been since you were a child, that how much of that feeling comes from us reading books and watching films and being surrounded by this idealized version of love? Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, it's not even idealized. It's that, you know, good or bad. It's, yeah, as you say, it's pretty much all you absorb in culture until you grow up enough to sort of broaden your horizons consciously. But when you're younger, yeah, like any film you watch, any, you know, most mainstream books you might be reading, they all revolve around a love story. And every other song is a love song or is about a relationship. And yeah, it's just total overload, like sensory overload. Like that's the only thing that life is about. That's definitely what you learn or I learned as a kid is like, that's what people think about. That's what you use your brain to think about is the relationship you're in. Yeah. And I suppose there's some sort of inherent drive there in us, you know, for us to partner up and to mate. But rather interesting fact that your propensity for, for example, engaging in one night stands is actually partially influenced by your genetic heritage. Right. 
which is what I think is rather interesting because one would think that that might be a behavioral thing or a learned behavior or something. But actually, yeah, how lightly you are to have one night stands is related to your genetic heritage. And also the type of partner you will choose is influenced in that way as well, which I think is rather interesting because I think we tend not to see that. Yeah, I would anyway, you know, and I, so yeah, I think that's kind of quite a fascinating um, yeah, aspect of it. Assumed that that was a learned behaviour for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, partially it will be as yeah, with anything, yeah. you know. But I had never really kind of considered the fact that part of that would be genetic, and also your character has a lot of things that many women unfortunately do. She, I suppose, has an eating disorder. She uses food as a means of control. That's very well written where you talk about your protagonist. You know, he says something annoying and she says, well, I'm not going to eat now. And I thought it was lovely how you delve into that. Yeah. Explaining that she's harming herself and nobody else knows she's not eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of what they did. Yeah. But the idea of like harming yourself to punish other people is, I think, very common to women. Like we're angry, but you don't really know how to express your anger. So you do it to yourself instead, you know. I think like almost all the behaviors in the book that she exhibits have that in common. She's actually angry. She's not actually sad with herself, but she doesn't really know how to process anger. And she does all these other things instead. I don't think I know a single woman who hasn't had some not an eating disorder and like I didn't have an eating disorder but yeah obviously like pretty much every woman I've had issues with eating and like found it difficult to be normal with it or whatever. It's hard for us to have a normal relationship with food with what surrounds us and what befalls us and actually I really did like that description I have one of those where your belly falls over the top of your knickers that part (laughs) you described that so well. And I do think we should clarify, because we were talking about that earlier, about how do we get to that place as young women where love is the most important thing, you know, and that's very culturally specific. Yeah, That's very Western. There's no way that that can possibly be the case, you know, if you're in a culture where you're working from the age of 10 (laughs) and where survival is a factor and actually where freedom of choice to love isn't an issue. So, so much of those problems are created by our society and our our cultural values. And I think this book is an exploration of that. And actually, for me, who kind of grew up in a different Ireland, the one that you grew up in and the one that your protagonist grew up in, And it almost begged the question for me that how liberating is as a woman being able to have sex freely? How liberating is it really? I mean, are you asking, is is it a bad thing that she's free to do that? Well, I'm just wondering how we talk about it being liberated, right, in a way. So when I grew up, like sex wasn't even really talked openly about. And it was still at that point where you don't have sex before marriage, although people, of course, did. But, you know, it was a much more private and particularly for women. And there was a lot of slut shaming in that way if people did do it. We're much more open now, thankfully, I think. And women are recognized as sexual beings and people who have desires and who are perfectly free to do whatever they wish. Yeah. Right. So that's sort of the general concept and total agreement and where I come from and what I feel and wouldn't disagree with. But in the context of your protagonist, how much of the self-destruction comes from that ability to be able to just sleep around? I don't think any of it. It's not. Gina. No, that's interesting. Yeah, the the, the freedom to have sex is not anything negative for her. It would be like saying the ability to eat is negative because you can use anything to make yourself feel bad. But sex itself and food itself are not the problems. You know, it's the way that you use them against yourself. But I suppose what I'm saying, it's a little bit akin. And I'm I'm only exploring this in my head because it kind of came up in in my head that because a lot of her self-destructive behaviors around that in a certain period yeah. in the book you know when she's sort of trying to end the relationship yeah. really and this is how she chooses to do it instead of a healthy way of yeah kind of it's over she kind of forces yeah. it by doing destructive things but I suppose it's a bit like saying what you said earlier you know she has the freedom she had no job she had no commitments she had no structure in life so she has the freedom to invest in this relationship Mm-hmm. However, if it was further on in her life, she wouldn't have that freedom or perhaps she would have left it earlier because she had other structures. So thinking of that in the reverse, no? 
I think the sexual freedom is still a possibility no matter what your life is like. I mean, you know, you can have a settled life and still have sexual freedom. I don't think that like that. I'm trying to think what the alternative would be. Well, the alternative would have been what we grew up in. So you see, that's what's rather interesting. We didn't have sexual freedom. It it just really wouldn't have been possible to do some of the things that she did. It it was just a very different world. Of course, it would be possible, but you'd almost be put away. (laughs) Which is what happened to any women. You know, women, uh, no, not my generation, but a bit before that, you know, they would have been put into mental institutions for promiscuity. So there was much more to lose back then yeah. if you did break those social norms. Yeah. So I'm coming at it from a very different history. And yeah. I think that's a sign of a really um, interesting book is that it can raise yeah. questions and discussions. And yeah. I think there'll be many questions and discussions around the book. I mean, yeah. is that something odd to say because you've written a piece of fiction or do you think that's something good to come of a book or would you prefer that people just go read the book and enjoy yeah, yeah no I think um I mean it's a mark that you've made something interesting if people are talking about if people aren't in agreement about what it means you know like so some people have read the book and thought she's a totally pathetic person and other people read it and think that she's a strong person in the end and you know like people have totally varying viewpoints on what sort of a person she is if she's meant to be likable if she's meant to be dislikable some people have written to me saying I am jealous of her promiscuity. And some people have written to me saying, I think it's so sad the way she does that. Like people have totally varying perspectives on this character. And that's, you know, that's always interesting. Um, Obviously I have my own perception of her, but like that doesn't matter anymore because it's like the turn of other people to have their own perceptions now. But I wouldn't say that it doesn't matter. I'm really interested in your perspective of her. And throwing mine out there, I think she is just a young woman on a journey to discover herself. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, towards the end, she is discovering herself. And it's that big question for all of us is, you know, did she have to go through that terrible journey to be herself? Or could she have got to be herself in it in an easier way? Yeah, I think for her, she has to, you know, and that's not to say every woman needs to experience something awful to become who they are. You know, like, obviously, that's not true. But yeah, I think that she needed to learn that love is not the point of life and that she sort of maybe needed this explosive lesson that she did get. She didn't just have sort of a series of boring boyfriends who were sort of nothing. She had this experience that, you know, taught her all in one go that in terms of function and your day-to-day life, it's not going to work to center everything around one other person. But yeah, and also I don't think like, because the book is a psychological portrait of this person, you know, it's all interior, it's all her explaining her own private motives like if any of us explained every single private thought that we have we would be dislikable to many people and I think if you find her dislikable you have to remember that and it's not as though she's presenting this to the world and you wouldn't dislike her if you met her in person I think that's important for me to bear in mind when I think about people disliking her is that I don't really think any of us could bear all of our interior lives and still be liked by most people You actually have that in the book. I know it's one of my bits that I underlined in the book and folks, I really did. (laughs) You do have that when she's in Athens and she just asks random people. Yeah. If your whole inside thoughts yeah. and actually I did that exercise yeah. and there's quite a few moments in the book where in her interior questioning, you know, she really does raise big issues. This is yeah. bigger. I think this book is bigger than the story it's telling yeah. if you want it to be yeah. um, because it does raise questions. And like that, that's one of those moments, you know, yeah. she just asks this random stranger. She's being her sort of nasty self and yeah. she's enjoying putting people on yeah. the spot and enjoying almost being viewed as crazy in a way because I remember thinking too she's lonely at this point yeah and instead of just striking up a conversation to assuage her loneliness she actually does things to kind of push people away yeah uh, even further when she has opportunity but she does ask that question if anybody could see all of your interior thoughts would anybody like you yeah and that's what the book itself is, is an attempt to show her all those like sordid impulses that we have that we don't share with other people. And it was, you know, trying to put them all down and to make it a complete picture of what was actually happening to her. Yeah. And I think it could be a cathartic book for some people reading, you know, if they are coming through or have had a period in their life where they don't feel comfortable about and yeah. 
you know, maybe are beating up on themselves too much for that or, you know, because I do think talking and sharing our experiences are so important. And I think it's really important. That's why I like your journalism, your article writing, because you say some of those things that for many people are unsayable. Yeah. And that can actually really be very helpful to other people. I don't know if that's your intention, but I think it just happens. Yeah, I think it's, you know, definitely one of the main functions of reading for me is when you find something that you've never voiced yourself but then you recognize it in someone else's writing obviously it's a very consoling moment when you find that those sort of sentences yeah so keep on doing it um are you thinking i mean i know this as a writer myself you know as soon as i finished the first book i wanted to write the second yeah. are you thinking that way or have you another one yeah it was a book deal actually so oh you lucky devil <laughs> yeah yeah and you got an amazing book deal too so yeah Congratulations on that. And, and I'm also very, very proud as an Irish woman. We produce some amazing female writers. Yeah. And actually, a lot of my guests on the show have been women writers. And that was not the intention. Yeah. Initially, the intention was just to talk to interesting, inspiring people about thriving and surviving in life. Yeah. And it just so happens that so many of them are writers. So have you started? Are you working on your next book? Yeah, yeah I started. I'll be spending the rest of the year on that. I look forward to that. Thank you. I do like to end by asking people to give their tip on surviving and thriving in life. What would you share? Um, I would say that the main thing that's made my life better in the last couple of years is learning to value my own company. I know that sounds very obvious, but I found it very difficult in my earlier life to think of an evening spent alone as a pleasurable or valuable thing and you know a lot of um what made me unhappy was trying to avoid being alone and I think uh having spent some time really investing in making that a good evening the prospect of an evening alone being a good thing has probably been the most valuable thing that I've done I I think that's a wonderful piece of advice because at the end of the day all you have is yourself and it's so important to be comfortable with yourself and to enjoy your own company and I do think that's something you share with the protagonist she Mm -hmm. is scared of being alone and I think that's part of it the journey you know when she is Mm -hmm. goes to Athens and she is alone it is sort of by choice she acknowledges that she feels lonely but I think that's a really important distinction I actually give a talk about this that being alone and being lonely are two entirely different things yeah and I think your protagonist began to learn that yeah. through the journey I hope it sells uh, by the book it load <laughs> thank you so much thank you If you would like to chat to me further about this episode or have your say on some of the issues that we raised in conversation, please contact me on social media, Sabina Brennan on Instagram or at Sabina underscore Brennan on Twitter or email me directly at info at superbrain.ie. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. 